Today we are going to be celebrating our Thanksgiving uh, Thanksgiving as a church this weekend, and it's, it's great in the fact that we're able to do that. I know that many of you already have your plans set, maybe, right? You're invited or you've been inviting your family and friends to go and have that Thanksgiving meal, that you're going to have that lunch and dinner. For some of you, you're looking forward to turkey. Some of you are saying no turkey at all. But at the same time, whatever the main meal is, that you're going to have all the fixings all put together, and you're going to take time with your family and friends to go and take a football game here and there. But you know what, it's also a special time of the year. We know that this is a holiday, but this, we take every single year, we take a moment and we just take a moment to stop and to think of all the things that we're grateful for. We take time to go and um, meet with all of our family and friends to eat a great meal. You know, it's also a special holiday, and we know that it's a special holiday here in the United States, but I really want to even let you know that this is a special holiday for us even as Christians. And if you think about it, um, you know, I was talking to with my wife, and we first got married, and we were going to have our first Thanksgiving together. And she's from Russia, and so she says, you know, you know, we don't celebrate this American Thanksgiving in Russia. And I was thinking, man, really? And I was like, and I thought everyone did. But I realized the fact that we know this, and we think, like, you know what, Thanksgiving is an American holiday. And you say, yes, there's other Thanksgivings that happen all around the world. But the Thanksgiving that we do here the meaning and the reasons why we do it is just a little bit different. You know, now, we know the reasons behind Thanksgiving, but I was looking it up. Some of it is kind of like political. Some of it has to do with, like, economic to extend the shopping season, and so some people really like extending the shopping season. But we know traditionally it's because the pilgrims, when they landed at Plymouth, and they were able to live in this land, you know, to kind of survive in this land. They were very grateful and thankful, so they give thanks to God. Now, one thing that we remember, but we tend to forget, is that these pilgrims were also Puritans. Right? They're Christian, but they came over, they brought over our Reformed faith. And they came over and they brought over this. And at that time, it was still pretty new. It was called the Geneva Bible. It was a Bible that was translated in Old English that they could understand. It's actually the Bible that actually where it puts in the numbers. So you see the chapters where the numbers came in? That's where the Geneva Bible came from. You might be more familiar with things like the King James Bible. During that time, they're about contemporaries, about the same time. And, but 80% of that goes back to another time where there was a guy named William Tyndale. It was the first English New Testament that was printed, it was made available for the masses so people could actually read it in Old English and actually understand the Word of God. And you might be thinking, well, there was the Gutenberg Press, right? Didn't they print Bibles already? But that was printed in Latin. And a lot of people didn't understand that. And so it was only really meant that only the priests and only the bishops could really understand what God's Word was all about. It was during that time where the church, the Catholic church, really had a hold on the people. It was a time when they tell them, you know what, you have to belong to the church to be saved. And we can tell you that if you don't belong to the church, that we can excommunicate you, that you don't have a relationship with God. And it was pretty scary during that time. But when the English version came out, they were able to read exactly what the God's word said. Some of the, some of the Bibles and books that were revealed during that time were things like Galatians. Things like Romans. And that's where we get the clearest view of what the gospel is all about. We get to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And so we get to hear things of the fact that, that, God, that God has forgiven our sins. That because of Jesus Christ dying on the cross that we're able to go and have a relationship with him. If we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, we shall be saved. It, it, it was just phenomenal. It changed everything. And so we think back to the times of these people. Even some people might say, well, that Tyndale Bible, was that really the first? It was, there was actually a Wycliffe who actually had manuscripts, and he would, he would write down portions of the Bible. But it changed everything when God's word was able to get in people's hands. And so when we go in here today, and, and I think that the significance for us today is that it came to be translated, the word back then, but that word changed these people or it changed these Puritans that they wanted to go and experience this faith and to have freedom to go and experience what, what God's word says. So they travel from one land to another land so that way they can go and practice what God's word said. And so we should be thankful as Christians for faithful men and women who are able to go and um, at the risk many times of their own lives you know, to kind of carry God's word so that way we can experience our freedoms to go and worship him today. As a side note, William Tyndale, who actually wrote that English version during that time, was persecuted by the Catholic Church. They said he was a heretic, that you were not supposed to do that. It was supposed to only be in the hands of those who were properly able to read it. Because he was able to do that, over time, we're able to have and sit here and be able to worship God today and sing songs and be able to, to experience him today. So as we get into God's word, a part of me just wants to just feel the weightiness of what we're about to go and read today. Because we're going to hear in the book of Romans of how to, how to live the Christian life. And we've been hearing that over the first few weeks. But today we're going to be learning more about just the motives of why we should be able to love the way that God wants us to love. And also we're going to hear about the manner in which we should be able to live this Christian life. So why don't you open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. And um, we're going to be looking at these verses in Romans 8 to 14. And let me read from verse 8 and actually verse 11. So that way just for time. And I'll read the rest of the verses later on. And it says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Besides this, in verse 11, says, Besides this, you know the time, and the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For our salvation is nearer to us now than we first believe. And we've been talking a lot about love the last few weeks. And today we're going to be talking a little bit more of the obligation for us to love. You know, nothing is more attractive than love. And, none, and nothing is more unattractive or repulsive than the absence of it. You know, love is never inappropriate. And the absence of love always is. And so you shouldn't be surprised at the fact that when we've been talking through the book of Romans, you've been hearing over and over again this need for us to go and love one another over and over and over again. It's because of out of love and because of love that from the time that we've been reading from chapter 12, Pastor Steve went over from passage, um, chapter 12, actually passage, um, chapter 12 and chapter 13 is actually really one whole thought. And so from chapter 12, it talks about our need to go and transform our minds, that we need to go and be able to think about this our, our, from the fleshly mindset to that of the spiritual mindset. 
It talks about the fact of our need to go and use our spiritual gifts. So our need to go and love without hypocrisy. Our need to love, and in the midst of love, that we are supposed to submit in authority. And this talks about how we are supposed to go and live the Christian life. And we know these things. But at the same time, we're going to talk about this whole thing about our obligation. And it seems pretty weighty. It says this in verse 8. It says, Oh, not one anything except to love each other. And that seems pretty bold. And as we see the bigger picture of all of Romans, actually um, from Romans like from 1 all the way till now, we can see a really big picture. And so from, verse, from this verse 7, you see this word O. It's the same word that we find in chapter 1. And it's, we see it as a word called obligation. And it says this, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And so from Romans 1, 14 and 15, we see the same word. And so he keeps the same thought that there's an obligation, there's a thing that we owe, and the one thing that we owe is always love. You know, there's an obligation that we have to keep. When we think of obligations, the things we have to do, we think of our debts. We think about the mortgage we have to pay, the bills we have to pay, maybe even the promises that we meet. These are obligations that we owe that we need to go and keep. But there is one thing, one debt that we should always keep that it can never run out, and that is our ability to love. And if you think about for your spouses and for your ones that you love, your family members, or the ones that maybe you're dating, you can never say, I loved you enough, right? You can never say, well, I loved you. I did that, done that, good enough. I'm done with it, right? That one that should, that should never run out is our ability to love always. So in chapter 13, this theme of love starts off at chapter 12, as I talked about, and the fact that it talked about us, how we're supposed to live the Christian life, changing our mindset from that of the fleshly mindset to one of, the, of a spirit, to go and use our gifts, to go and get along with one another, to submit to authority. But now we get to this place of like, we know these things, but what, is, what should motivate us to actually do that? I mean, what should be the motive? You know, what is the manner in which we should lead our lives in such a way and say that, you know what, we actually led a life of love? So the two questions that really came to mind for myself is, you know, what should motivate us to love others? Use our spiritual gifts to follow others, to live by a spirit, to love one another. And what is the manner or attitude? And sometimes I think, what is the perspective that we should always keep in mind that it should drive us to love in our need to love every single day? You know, why do I need to do it? Sometimes I think about the fact that I'm already saved. The people I know are already saved too. They're going to go to heaven. So why do I need to continually love others? So let's explore this and what the Apostle Paul has to say for us today. And there are secrets, I believe, the fact that should change the way we think. You know, it changed the way, you know, when they read the Geneva Bible, when they read their Bible for the first time, it changed the way they think, the way they lived. Maybe people like Tyndale, maybe people like Martin Luther who put the thesis upon the door. People like Wycliffe who decided, you know what, this is my mission in life. I need to walk in the spirit. I need to love others by carrying God's word throughout the ages. You know, maybe there's something that they know that maybe we don't know. Maybe there's something they see. Maybe we just need to see a little bit better and maybe allow that to change us. 
So let's explore this first question. What should motivate us to love others? What should motivate us? Is that motivation? So in verse 8, it says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet, or any other commandment are summed up in this word. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And this is the first section. And you know, I thought about what should motivate us to love others. Well, the obvious answer is Jesus, right? So it's like, it's Jesus. Okay, let's move on. Let's go home, right? And when I thought about that, I said, you know what? Well, yes, it's Jesus. From chapters 1 to 11 of what God has done in the cross, in Romans 3.23, it says this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for you. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Romans 10.9, Because if I confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe the fact that he is, God has raised him from the dead, I shall be saved. And the Mecca, and then at the top of all of it, Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All the things that we know. So the obvious answer really is Jesus. And that should motivate us. But, you know, and this is a constant feature that is within the New Testament. There is a sense of responsive obligation. If you receive something, you should give it. But I was reading through this, and I was kind of reading through this verse. Sometimes I feel as if, like, when I hear that as an answer, it seems like a lot of doing. It seems as if, you know, that's just a lot of earning our right to be a Christian. There's a sense that's true. We, you know, once we receive, we want to give it away, and that should be a motivation. But I think we need to balance this off by, you know, are there other reasons of why God motivates us? In Romans 8, 20, um, 8, Two to four, I need to balance this off. It says this, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now this is where it gets back to walking in, this, walking in the flesh versus, versus walking in the spirit. That we need to remember the fact that we've already been set free. That salvation and our relationship with God has already been done. It's a done deal. But, so, but now there's this new thing that we're now living under this new law, the law of the spirit. And there seems to be a sense of obligation to do this. And this should actually also be our motivation. If you were here last week, Dr. Solsey talked about our need to submit to others. And he said these points. He said that, that, you know, we need to entrust ourselves to God and we understand our position now, you know, the part of when we receive Christ, that's far away, that's been cut off. And so now we are a child of God. Now it's our responsibility to go and do what? He says this, that we offer in submission as a gift from our position, our position of an awesome power. That, you know what, because of we have this new life, there's actually some things that are available to us as a Christian, as a child of God. And so it's an obligation, it's also a motivation to go and figure out what this new life is all about. Let me tell you a little personal story. Um, you know, my daughter, she always asks me, and for a lot of fathers, they always ask, 
you know, it's like, hey, daddy, can you go and tell me a story before you go to sleep? And so one of the stories that my daughter always asked me, I've been telling this story for many, many years, and she always asked me before she goes to sleep, daddy, can you tell me the Adam story? The Adam story? Sure, I love to tell you the Adam story. So there once was a story about an Adam. And it's Adam had this incredible power that it wanted to go and share with all of the world. But it needed to find someone to go and share this with. So it traveled from galaxy to galaxy, from universe to universe. And we would travel all over. We have an incredible time talking about all of these different travels. And all of a sudden, it goes to this one galaxy. And there's a small little planet. It looks a little green and blue and white. And it realizes the fact that I think this is the place where I want to go and share this incredible power. So it goes into, around this planet, looking all around. It goes from Africa, it goes to China, Japan, and Europe. And then all of a sudden, it comes to the United States. And all of a sudden, it comes to the United States, and all of a sudden, it goes to the East Coast and the West Coast, and it finds itself on the West Coast. And all of a sudden, it goes to, we were living in Oceanside during that time, it goes to Oceanside, California, at a house, 435 Lexington Circle. And all of a sudden, it goes into the home, and he says, where is this person? Because I know this person's here. It sees this one older lady, and then she's, she's cooking. She's way too busy. He goes, ah, oh, no, not that person. It goes to this other girl. She's studying. goes, ah, oh, not that one. It finds this guy. Oh, but you know what? He's like, all oh, fathers on the throne of life. It's really stinky. So he doesn't want to go there. So he leaves there. He goes, oh, no, I got to get out of here. It's way too stink. And all of a sudden, it passes through a room, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, sees this little girl. And this Adam goes, that's the person that I want to share this power with that needs to be shared with the world and implants himself within her. And then she kind of looks around and goes, so, so where is it? And he goes, you know what? You're going to have to work it out. You're going to have to figure out who you are. And she, she loves that story because she realizes the fact that she knows, and I, I tell her about this Bible verse in 2 Corinthians 4, that God says that, you know what, that there's a treasure that he implants in jars of clay in us. That so that way they, the world can see the surpassing power of God within them. And all of us has this surpassing power if we have received Christ in our life, that this awesome power that needs to be shared with the world. And so when we think about that, I mean, yes, the motive is Jesus, what Jesus has done. And because of our obligation to figure out, man, there's something special why God has placed me here on this earth. But all of a sudden, he gets into this whole thing of the commandments. In verse 9, it says, for the commandments that you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet, and any other commandment are summed in this word that you should love your neighbors yourself. When Paul mentions these commandments, we realize the fact that the truth is that love cannot manage on its own. You can't just say just love people. There needs to be a moral objective standard. And God gives us a little bit of barriers and what that looks like. So when Paul wrote this whole thing, he says that love is not the end of the law. But love is the fulfillment of what it should look like. And so what I put on here number three is that as we love others, it points us back to God's created order. In the way that God had created it to be. So when we think about the commandments and these laws that he has made, before this law was made because you had to require a requirement to be saved, but now it's actually because of who we are 
Because we realize in the original order that adultery harms people of their home and also their honor. That robbery robs, uh, murder robs a person of their life. That stealing is a theft of another person's property and also, you know, position. When we covet, and we covet so much in our life, it harms and does evil. Because it harms society in such a way of simplicity and also of contentment of life that we feel like we always have to outdo each other. And we realize the fact that we need to get back to God's created order and how we are supposed to love each other. And so we realize the fact that love and law need each other. That love needs law for direction. And law needs love for inspiration. So when Paul mentions these things, the fact that he says that, you know what? When he mentions these commandments, it's not the means to become a Christian, but it's who you are now and how you're supposed to live. He goes on and says, well, all of this is summed up in this word, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. The love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Throughout this chapter, in fact, from the beginning of chapter 1, we hear a lot about loving one another, one another, one another, one another. That one another has to do with someone like you, if you define it. That one another is someone who you like. He uses this other word called neighbor. And that neighbor has to do with, it can be translated another, or meaning someone who's not like you, or maybe someone maybe you dislike. And all of a sudden, so you, this question is then, who is my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love? And so when I rewrote this a little bit, it says, well, love does no wrong or no harm to a person that you like, people that are like you, the people, or even this, people that are not like you, or even people you don't like. And that is called, and when you do that, now you are fulfilling, fulfilling the law. So law is not some just good idea, right, some ethereal thing. There's some direction in it. And he says that love does no harm to a neighbor, those we know and those we don't know. And when you think about this word neighbor, um, there was actually a question that was given to Jesus. It's, who is my neighbor? And you remember this story in Luke, 20, um, Luke 10, 25 to 37, the story of the Good Samaritan. Everyone's heard this story about the Good Samaritan. Right? There's a Good Samaritan hospital. There's all these nonprofits always talk about, you know, we are Good Samaritans, right? Being a good neighbor. And the story is very simple, right? There was a man, most likely a Jewish man, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers and then he's beaten and, you know, beaten half dead. All of a sudden, there was a priest, a religious man, a pastor walks by and sees this man and walks on the other side. Then there was a person, a Levite, a person who understands the law and how you're supposed to follow the law, sees the man but walks on the other side. All of a sudden, there was a Samaritan, and Jews and Samaritans hated each other. In fact, in this story, they would have understood in the culture back then that the Samaritan is the bad guy of the story. But all of a sudden, this bad, evil man comes along and takes pity on the man, bandaged his wounds, put him on his own donkey, and took him to an inn. Paid the innkeeper and said, you know what? If he needs more, I'll give you more. I'll reimburse you on my way back. This classic story of who is my neighbor, or more importantly, who acted like a neighbor. But when I think about this story, we've heard a lot many times. Many of you have been Christians for a long time, but does it really change us? 
You know, we know about Jesus. We know about this power. We know about our, our need to get back to his order. But does it really change who we are and how we live? You know, there's a research that was done at um, Landmark Study that was done in Princeton University by some psychologists. And they met a group of seminarians, you know, future pastors and missionaries. And um, they asked them to do one thing. Grab your Bibles. We're going to give you some verses. And you're going to prepare a talk. Go to another building and just present your talk. That's all you have to do. They, some of them, they gave some verses. But some of them, they gave the Good Samaritan verse. They gave that Luke 10. You know, what does it mean to be a Good Samaritan? But as they prepared their talk, on their way to go and, go and give this talk and walking through the through the campus, each student would run into a man set up by the researchers, an actor. He was obvious in need of help. You know, slumped over, head down, coughing, <laughs> groaning. Uh. And all of a sudden, the question was, who would stop and lend a hand? So after reading their verses, preparing their talks, what do you think the results would be like? What they found out? Made no difference at all. And so many times the things that we know, the things that we need to do, many times makes no difference. But you know what? I think it does. But so let's look at the manner that should help us or the attitude or perspective that helps us to continually love each other, that drives us in our need to love. So let's go in from verse 11. I'm just kind of walk you through this. It says, but besides this, you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. And so then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality, sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its sins, its desires. And so when Paul writes this, there's this sense where he goes, now is the time to wake up. Now is the hour, right? There's a sense of urgency that he's putting on. He says our attitude, our manner is in a sense like, I think we got to do this now. And so when you look at the word time, he says now is the time. The fact that you know the time. There's two ways of looking at time. One is um, chronos, where we get the word chronology, when we get the days of the calendar or when we look at our watch, we look at our phones and we see what time it is. The other one is kairos. And it has to do with more of this fixed appointed season. It refers to the quality of the period, the age in which you're living in. Do you understand the age right now and what you're living in right now? And so when Paul writes this, in fact, he uses the latter. He doesn't use chronos. He uses kairos. He says this, do this knowing that the kind of time that you live in, do you know the kind of time that you're living in right now? This illustration has been done many times over. You know, if I had a big giant rope, really long, and I grabbed one end and I tied it to an arrow and I launched it and I went poof and went through the wall, it went across the building, it went across over the mountains, across the horizon, and he just kept grabbing the rope over and over again. And it keeps going on forever. And then I grab the other end and I grab and I grab my arrow and put it on and I poof, poof, 
goes through the wall, goes to, this, to the streets. It goes all the way down to the ocean, past the horizon. It keeps going on and on. And then I grab a portion of that rope and I make it very taunt. And then I grab a little pen and I put a little scratch. And that scratch represents our life in the midst of eternity here on earth. In light of all of eternity, our life is just like a scratch. And we love that scratch, don't we? Right? We do everything we can to go and make sure we have everything we can do on that scratch. But in light of eternity, everything looks a little bit different. Do you know the age and the time, the quality of the season in which you're living in right now? You know, we know that this is not referring to personal salvation and the fact that it talks about us to wake up. Because salvation is here, but it's nearer now than we first believed. And so when he's talking about, you know, we come to the place where in this time that we're at, we think about the men and the women who have actually lived before us. We think about people like the Puritans who knew the age and the time that they were living in. And they knew that this is the one thing that they needed to do is carry this Bible from one land to the next. We know that people like Tyndale, at the risk of his own life, said, you know what? I need to translate God's word because this is something that everyone needs to hear. The reason why you're sitting here in the midst of this scratch is maybe there was a man or a woman or someone you have heard that came across your path that decided to say, you know what? Do you know this guy named Jesus Christ? Do you know what it means to go and walk in his spirit? So I want to let you know the fact that God's love for you is something that you need to know. And someone took time out of their day to go and say, you know what? You need to know this. Do you know the time and the hour in which you live? And so it tells us to wake up. You know, right now we're living in this day where, if you think about time, there was a time when Christ came and he died on the cross for our sins. And then he went to heaven. He says that I will return. So there will be the second coming of Christ and when he will turn and then all things will just be incredible. And the fact that things of happiness and goodness and righteousness and his joy is going to be great. But it's overlapping with this one age that right now before he comes, we're living this age and where we're living where there is forgiveness and righteousness but also we're overlapping with this old age of guilt and shame and sickness and misery still remain. And you and I are living in this time in between before Christ's return that we're called to go and live with urgency, but also we're living in these two ages that when Christ, he has forgiven you, he has accepted you, he has empowered you for holiness and love, yet not everything's perfect right now. None of us are ever perfect yet, so we still struggle with sin and sickness and death. So the emphasis is not here on the darkness, but right now we're living in the fact that in the midst of the dawn of the light, we realize the fact that there's a battle that is going on right now for each of us to go and learn how to live the Christian life. And so the attitude is, is the fact that we have to learn that, there is, that this is a battle right now that we must fight. And that's number two. You know, the way that I learned how to um, type my dad taught me how to type, but he, he was in the army. So he said, this is the one phrase that you must type over and over again. He says, now is a time that men must gather together and fight for their country. Now is a time for men to gather together and fight for their country. And it's something I, I type every I even type it today. It's like it's, it's stuck in my brain, okay? 
And, but it's one of those things where I think it's one of those things where when I think about this, that we're in this overlap of ages, in fact, that there's a battle. And now is the time for all of us to gather together to fight this one battle together. Because I think about the age that we live in now. There was an age in which they lived then. They needed to carry God's word. But there's an age that we live in right now. And it seems as if the world is out of control. You know, the governments have lost their ability to make wise decisions sometimes. It seems as if we're always looking for what's going wrong with the world than what is going right. We wonder where the good leaders are. And when we find a good leader, we find all the dirt on them. It seems as if we're coming to this place in our age that us as a, as an, as a country, we've lost the ability to be a Christian nation. And when a politician would say, you know, I'm a Christian, you know, we look for all of the dirt. We look for all of the ways to criticize them and the way to put them down. And the ones who put them down are really mostly Christians. When I think about the things that are happening in our schools, it seems as if everything is so anti-Christian. Everything is pro-something else. There's always these things happening in the schools right now. A lot of news has happened. And it seems like things are just out of control. But one thing that people don't want to hear from, it seems like they don't want to hear from Christians at all. But when I was thinking about this, I was like, you know what? I don't know if that's true. And listen to me very carefully. You know, I believe that the world would not criticize Christians unless the world was looking for one. If you hear me clearly, it says, you know, I think that your friends and family, the people that you work with, they wouldn't complain about this whole Christianity stuff. They wouldn't complain about Christians at all unless they are in themselves desperately seeking one who is genuine. You know, people are not tired of Christians. I don't think so. People are not against Christianity at all. But they're against Christians who say that there are Christians, but they don't act like one. You know, Jesus said this. He says that, you know what? They will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. That's what Jesus said. And Francis Shaver put it in this way, and I don't have the whole quote in front of me, but in a sense is this. is the fact that Jesus has given the right for the world to judge Christians based on their love for one another. Because Jesus said that. By your love for one another, they will know that you are my disciples. So I put in my notes here, number three, it's time. It's time to wake up. It's the time to wake up on what God has called you to do and have this attitude, have this perspective. It tells us to put on this kind of armor of light. It refers to the right kind of clothing. Remember in this verse, it talks about darkness, and darkness refers to the time that we've been sleeping. Maybe we've been sleeping, and we know the things that we need to know, but we've been sleeping, and we say, you know what, this is the way I'm just going to live my life, because it's very much more comfortable. But the dawn is coming, and it's asking us now to go and live in the light. So as we, when you get up in the morning, you know, and your hair is out of place and everything, right? You know, what do you do? You make your hair, brush your teeth, put on the right kind of clothing. You put on the appropriate clothing for the season. And that's what this verse is talking about. It's now time to put on the armor of light, to put on Jesus Christ. But we do have temptations. Things of orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, not quarreling and jealousy. And all of these things really come down to one thing, if I had to sum it all up. And that is our, many times our lack of self-control. Many times we, we choose to go and just say, you know what, I'm just going to live in the darkness. But now 
I think because of our age and the time that we're at, we're called to live in the light. You know, things like areas of drinking and substances and, you know, trying to take things out of control, you know, really is, it, it, it's a problem. It's a problem in the sense where drinking is not, drinking is not wrong in, in this sense. If you drink for a meal and, it, and you're in control, it's okay. It's talking really more about the out-of-controlness, getting drunk. During this time, when Paul was talking um, to these people, there was this festival called the, um, they were celebrating the, the God of Baracus. And so there was this festival that was going around, and so people would just get really wild during this time. So he was saying, you know what, in your time, just have some a little bit self-control. In our time, maybe it's not drunkenness, it's not substance abuse, maybe some it is, and I, wanna, I don't want to make light of it. You know, but God can go and say, you know what, I can come into your life, and I would love to go and take control. But what he was asking for is that, you know what, maybe we just need to have a little bit more self-control. For some of us, it might be looking at the phone. Some of us, it might be gaming, because I know that, you know what, gaming can be very addictive. And some of you have been playing that same game for the last three years, paying money into it. I know that. And you can't stop. It says have a little bit self-control. When it talks about sexual immorality or sensuality, it really is there's a moral standard, and we need to keep a moral standard in our relationships with one another, at work, in our families, with our friends. When it talks about the part of quarreling and jealousy, it really is having a little self-control when you're on the road and driving. Please do not give the finger anymore. Please don't go and get angry and get out of control, right? That's all it really is talking about. Because the choice is, will you walk in the flesh or will you walk in the spirit? And now is the time. And I really do believe that, that the world would not criticize Christians unless it was actually looking for one. And the world is looking for one that is in you. And there's an awesome power which God has laid within a treasure, within gar- jars of clay that needs to be shared with the world. You know, want to know the secret to the Christian life? As you read through Romans, you get this one thing. Number one is the fact that you would pursue others and letting them know of who Jesus is. Another one would be that you would just continually walk in his spirit. Another secret would be that you would love others the way that Jesus loves. Follow those things, you will keep growing in your walks with God. Why do we need to be do this? Because Jesus did it. <laughs> he died on the cross for us. There's a work that he wants to work out in you. The time is at hand. And I will put into your minds right now the way that my father has put into mine. It's like now is the time for all men and women of God to gather together to go and fight for their family and their friends, for the ones that they know, the ones they don't know, and the ones that you come across paths with. And if we do that, we learn how to love our neighbors. Amen? Let's pray.